Hey, I'm Dee Lauderdale, and this is the Modern Southern Gentleman Show. Stories and conversations to lead you down the path of becoming the best version of yourself. Uh, this episode is actually uh, an encore interview I did with a guy named Will Anderson. Uh, the interview happened five years ago. It was in a uh, coffee shop here in my hometown of Huntsville, Alabama, and so that's why the, uh, the audio sounds a little different. But uh, at the time, Will and his brother's organization was called Salem Town Board Company. It has since transitioned to be called Maple Maple Built. And uh, they describe themselves as a woodworking apprenticeship that employs, trains, and mentors young men in Nashville, Tennessee. But their overall goal is we exist to create employment, job training, and mentorship opportunities for at-risk youth. Um, the reason I'm replaying this is I thought in light of everything that's going on as I said to recording this on uh, June 7th of 2020, racial tensions are have been ramped back up. And Will brings a, a unique perspective to the racial conversation in that he and his brother are two white guys from the north that are working with at-risk youth in inner-city Nashville, uh, predominantly black young men. And, uh, Will has got some, uh, strong thoughts and some strong feelings about this. Uh, and I knew it was important for us to all hear it. It was important for me to listen to it again. So hang in there with it. Will is going to challenge you. He's going to educate you and he's going to inspire you. And really what more could you ask for now? My conversation with Will Anderson. have a company in Nashville, a very small company that makes skateboards, and you hire kids, guys, young kids, young guys from that neighborhood to work in your business, mm -hmm. all with, as, as I understand it, the, the making skateboards is secondary. Yeah. Your goal is to show, teach, prove whatever to these young guys is this is what it means to be a man. This is the value of work. This is the reward that you will feel for work, just to let them experience that in, in a real way. Mm -hmm. And by the way, why skateboards? Uh, did you know anything it's, it's, about making skateboards? Yeah, oh, it's in my did? blood. I, I've, I've been making skateboards since I was a kid. Okay, yeah. so that was something you were very familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, w woodworking and skateboarding and growing up surfing and skating. And okay. That's something that, that I've been doing for a long time. So you guys move into a really rough part of Nashville. It was. Gentrification is the awful. The hipsters are everywhere, aren't they, my brother? But yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, it's it's a rough part of Nashville one week. The next week, it's hot property. And every, so you think you're going to move to find another rough? Oh, definitely. Part of yeah, we're going to be moving within the next couple of months. You're going to go like north of uh, north of the interstate? Uh, no, we're staying in Nashville. You're going to stay in. Um, kind of within the loop sort of yeah but we're we're going i'm still kind of tight-lipped about where we're going just because yeah, i don't want gentrification happens so quickly <laughs> uh no it, like it's it's terrible like I'll, I'll go to the place where we're moving and like I, i'll be standing outside smelling pot smoke watching people walk by that i'm fairly certain they're carrying illegal firearms yeah and what i'm nervous about is the guy driving by in the mercedes suv because i know he's a property developer and he's going to buy it and jack the price up and you're yeah. going to be able to stay there. Yeah. And so like those, those are the people that make me nervous now, the, 
The guy, the guy who's dealing drugs, like, hey, you know, you're he's, good with that. I'm, I'm not even a part of his world. He doesn't care about me. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the guy driving the new Cadillac who I know has the, the power with a, a couple pieces of paperwork to destroy hundreds of lives. So, how in the world does a self-admitted Yankee, yeah, show up in inner city Nashville? How do you convince the first couple of guys to come to work for you? These these black kids that I yeah. mean, you're you're as total as total opposite of them as is possible. Would yeah. you agree? So how how did you get the first ones? To, how did you convince the first ones to come work for you for minimum wage instead of? Oh, they're not getting dope? minimum wage. They're getting better than minimum wage. Oh, are they? Yeah, they. they That's cool. They, they they make they make decent money. Um, did you yeah. know that that was a key to it? You had to pay them decent money? No, I could, I could pay minimum get? wage. I just wanted to, out of principle, like, I, w- I want to create a job for these young men where, uh, like, part of what we're doing is is not just creating a job, but, cre- like, trying to be a step into the business world. Mm-hmm. And so part of their personal equity, it, you know, uh, a big part of their personal equity is within their uh, resume. Right. And so being able to have... Uh, like whatever their next job is that they go and apply for, mm-hmm. if their next employer is able to look down and see, oh, these guys didn't make minimum wage, like they had a job where, where they are worth something, um, that just that gives them more. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think that, that gives gives them more uh, mobility and flexibility in terms of their futures. And we wanted to, we just wanted to kind of like out of principle, we didn't want to pay these kids. Well, what's the least that we can pay them? Yeah. Um, do you think it also helped that they were making more than they would have minimum wage so that, that helped them to uh, stay away from the temptations of other ways to make money? No, because those ways of making money pay a lot better than I do. <laughs> um, so how many guys have you got working for you now? Uh, through the cold months, three or four. Okay. Uh, d- during the summer, it can balloon up to eight or nine. All right. Um, but we, um, in terms of the first couple guys, like, the, I, I, I feel like the term inner city, in terms of referring to a, a cultural context, is, is almost an out-of-date term just because, because of the gentrification over the course of the past two to five years, the inner city is now desirable. So for, what would you call it? For people like myself. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but the, what has historically been referred to as the inner city culture is very relational. When I moved to Salem Town, in 2012, people knew their neighbors. Like, I was an oddity uh, as, as a white guy in my 20s. Um, okay. But people knew their neighbors. Like, uh, people knew what was going on in the neighborhood. Pe- like, if there, was, if there was stuff heating up out at a gang level, the grandmas sitting on the front porches knew it because people, people knew people. And now, as the neighborhood is totally flipped... Um, you, nobody knows their neighbors. Yeah. No, the, yeah. the architecture has changed. It used to be that, like, when I moved in, all the porches were on the front. Mm-hmm. And now all the porches are on the back, behind the fence, or on the roof. Um, and so it's just, it's been a complete cultural shift in the neighborhood as well. Uh, so when I moved in, I just, I just became a part of the neighborhood. Just I, got on your board and started riding around the neighborhood? Or? Yeah, I, I, I think for anybody that wants to get to know their neighbors, have a dog. A dog is like, a dog is the best way to be <laughs> non-creepy. Because like if I just, like if I, if I put on my running clothes and go for a run around the neighborhood, like there's just kind of the assumption like, don't talk to me, right. I'm running. Uh, if I just like go for a walk, 
you know, at the time, you know, as a as a single guy in my twenties, just walking around the neighborhood greeting people. Like mm -hmm. I was like, uh oh, is this is like a Jehovah's Witness. What's going on? Um, <laughs> and and so like if you're just walking around just talking to people, like it just kind of weirds people out. But if yeah. you have a dog, it's like the easiest way to oh, because yeah, people either want to come meet your dog or they want to tell stories about their dog, or it's just a very easy icebreaker. And so. Um, I'm sure there's other ways of doing it. For me, it was just walking around with the dog. I also had uh, front yard cookouts once a month. We would just get a bunch of cheap hot dogs and hamburgers and invite all the neighbors and anybody who just happened to be out. We would just be grilling from about six to nine and whoever was... So whoever walked by, you just said, hey, you want something yeah, to eat? Yeah, you want dinner? And so the neighborhood kids would show up and be riding around and pushing around on skateboards and um, then their mamas would come out. And, um, Who's this know, weird white boy? the moms are saying <laughs> yeah and so but a lot of it was just just being a part of the community and, and it's not there it's was not a big deal yeah there, there was no secret sauce in terms of like you know how does how does this goofy white dude in his late 20s become a part of the community it's not uh, it's not a testament to me figuring something out it, it's a it's a testament to how open and accepting and honest and just real the community I moved into was um, and I think that like people can look at you know the the cultural divides that exist in this country and say like you know how will we ever cross it, and like I mean you can sit and blog about the cultural complexities of the South all you want, but at the end of the day like get off your porch and go meet somebody. Yeah, and so like I I spent I spent a couple years or I spent a while there just like. Anything that happened at the community center, I'd be there. Um, just being around, being available, being somebody, like, just trying to meet people and be known and, and know people and know their names. You were doing this weird thing called being a neighbor. Yes. Very, very strange. I mean, there, there wasn't any, uh, you know, we always look for some secret sauce, as you said earlier. We always look for something that we can replicate. And as we talked about earlier, it's really nothing to be invented. It's just... <coughs> It's really the basics of the gospel, and if you go back and read the New Testament, what you did, and what we all do, is just live. Just you know, Jesus was a master teacher of his guys, just as he went. Mm -hmm. And when he got into a community, what did he do? He just hung out. He went to wherever the people were hanging out, yeah, and and just became friends with people. I mean, yeah. it really is that simple. I think in 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 a lot of ways. So, yeah, so after being there, I just you know looking around and seeing these young guys. Like when I was sixteen. And it was time for me to go get a job. Like the, the deal in my house was, like there was a there was a 1986 Oldsmobile Delta 88 that was my drive, but I had to pay the insurance on it. Okay. Which meant that I had to go like I had to go work before I had a car in order to get the money to pay for the the insurance. So so you could have a car. Yeah. So. Um, but even even then, as a as a punk sixteen year old kid entering the job market, I already had a pretty exhaustive list of jobs that I was above. Okay. My mom would say, "You know, why don't you go work? You know, why don't you go apply at the Wendy's? You know, which was probably like a mile and a half bike ride." No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm, you know, I don't need to do that. But like, like what I hate is is there are well-meaning but totally misunderstanding people that will look at the afflictions of. You know, the, the quote-unquote inner-city culture and say, well, you know, the problems are that, you know, the fundamental problem here is that people are lazy and aren't willing to work. But if you're a 16-year-old kid who's grown up in the inner city, you can't just go to Wendy's and get a job. Like, your, your parents are competing for those jobs. Wow. And so, so it, it's, it's not just that, wow. like, oh, oh, just go get a job. No, you, th there are no jobs to just go get. 
Um, they're competing with their parents for the job. Well, that, no, they, no, they're not competing with their parents. They don't compete. They just, no, that's my point, though, yeah. they, that they would be, that those jobs that would be typical for a teenager aren't available to them is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, and so, like, and I, I know, like, I, I've, I've known guys who, who are working, you know, working three jobs, minimum wage jobs, trying to, you know, trying to do the best they can to pay their bills, but they're all jobs that are, you know, they're they're mowing lawn, like they're all what I would look at as intro to the job market jobs, but mm-hmm. being where they've started, they, they just, it's really hard to get out of that. And if you wow. look at something like, you know, something like working at McDonald's, like there's just not a lot of upward potential. Yeah. Like, you know, you, once you become the manager of a subway, like where do you go from there? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just the kind of idea of just go, get out there, just work hard and it's going to be okay. I know a lot of people who work really hard, and they've been working really hard for decades. And they're, you know, they're still in a place where it's really easy for people that don't know their situation to look at them and say, oh, well, the problem is X, Y, Z. Just this broad generalization that they project onto them. Yeah. And, and something, that, something else that I think is huge is, is I know a lot of young men that are very lazy. I hire them. Mm-hmm. But simply saying the problem is laziness, blanket coverage, the problem is they're lazy, they need to stop being lazy. I'm a 28-year-old that's very prone to laziness, and yet I have, you know, an AA, uh, uh, BA, and an MDiv, and I've started a business, and it's not because I'm awesome, it's because all along the way I had teachers and coaches and pastors and parents and, like, so many people that didn't give me the option to be lazy. And so I, I am, I feel like any success that I've been able to have is a testament to my support system, not a glorification of myself. And for a lot of these young men, they just, they don't have that. And so we want to indict them on, you know, the fact that they didn't have what I had. Like when I graduated from elementary school, the very next day, my dad woke me up at 645 on a Saturday morning to mow the, like that was the first time that, you know, it was, it was now time that I start mowing the lawn. Mm-hmm. And not only was it get up and mow the lawn, but my dad being the OCD person that he is, uses <laughs> words like manicured for a ditch. So The it, standards were high. Yeah, and so it, it, was, it wasn't just go out there and do it, you know, now I'm going to teach you how to work, but I'm going to teach you how to work and I'm going to help define for you what done looks like. It's not just go mow the yard, but go mow the yard and to a certain standard. And then when you're done, come get me, and I will, you know, I will show you the areas that you missed, and you know, weed whacking to a certain standard, edging to a certain standard, cleaning it up to good, a certain good standard. Good enough was not, was not the standard. Yeah, and so like I had, I had multiple different support structures in my life, teachers and uncles, and like there were so many people that were constantly pulling me aside and saying, "This is what you're doing. We know that you can do better. What are you going to do to get there?" And for the young men that I'm working with. They just, they just don't have those support structures. And so instead of, I feel like there's a lot of people that can sleep better at night. If you can, if you can call out somebody for their failure and, and be able to prescribe, well, this is why you're failing. It's almost like saying, and this is why I'm not responsible to be a part of the solution. And so if we can throw yeah. out the blanket coverage yeah. of, well, those people are blank, mm-hmm. and therefore it's their problem, therefore I'm not responsible. Mm-hmm. Then you know, all of us who are financially stable and come from legacies of financial stability can all sleep a little better because it's their problem, and if only they would clean up their mess. Well, 
you know, I think what's interesting about hearing that from you is this isn't theory. You're not spouting something that you read in, no. in a sociological class that you had in college or something that you had in seminary mm -hmm. or that you, that you spent one six-week mission trip in one summer. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, you're, you're speaking from, you've been there since you said 2012? 2012, so a couple years. So three years. So this is, uh, this is real world. Did you go into it with a preconceived notion uh, I was clueless. That people were just lazy. I mean, did you did you go into no, it with that theory? Uh, I don't think? know. Maybe. I, like, I'm I'm just as judgmental as the next person. Um, no, I'm more judgmental than anybody. <laughs> trust me. Um, but I, I don't I don't know. I mean, did did have any? Uh, what's let me ask you? Let me put it this way: What has surprised you the most? about doing what you do, about what you've learned about these people, about um, people in there, general? There's a, there's a lot of things that I believe now where three years ago, and like, I will preface this by saying like, like I am, I, I, I refer to myself as a bleeding heart libertarian. I, um, Those words don't go together. I know. Um, <laughs> But I'm, I'm still young enough to, to believe the lie that I'm unique. Um, no, I, 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 say, I say that as someone where I believe very strongly in certain moral imperatives. I just don't believe it's the government's job to enforce them. I'm with you. And so, like, I, I have no problem pointing my finger at somebody and saying, you should blank. I just don't think it's Mr. Obama's job to back me up on it. So, um... So I, I believe in corporate responsibility. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe in forced corporate responsibility. Okay. Um, okay. Like, I, I, yeah, there, there's plenty of things that, that, that I believe very strongly and I think people should do. Uh, I just don't want to back it up with legislation. Well, so, um, so yeah, 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 yeah. In light of you know, th things that I believe now, um, I mean, just like I remember a couple years ago seeing a political cartoon and it, 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 was, it was comparing uh, the differences between how conservatives see equality and liberals see equality. Okay. And, and in one, it, it's, it was these two boys trying to look over a fence. And one boy is tall, one boy is short. And it said, a conservative view of equality, and they're both standing on three books trying to look over. And it said, liberal view of equality. And it, it showed the tall boy standing on three books and the short boy standing on like eight. Okay. Um, and so it's, it, it, it was basically saying yeah. that the more liberal view of equality is you have to give the shorter boy more in order to see at the same height mm -hmm. as, as the kid who has three. I've, I've, and, never, I've never thought of it that way. Uh, it's an, and that, well, at the time, like when I saw that, I, I saw that was like, yeah, because I saw it as a critique of liberalism. Oh, absolutely. That but now, now I look at it and I say, yeah, because I think it's a, it's a critique of, of, of conservatism. Of classical conservatism. Well, and that was exactly what I was sitting here mulling my mind when you said that. I said, that, that's, a, that's a brilliant cartoon because whoever sees it is going to use it as an attack on the one they're not. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I'm pretty smart. I'm trying to... So, like, I find myself saying things where two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, I would have said, like, I would have written off as, like, oh, well, that's, that's just liberalism. Mm-hmm. Or um, now <laughs> it's, it's, like, it, I, what I've learned is everything is more complicated than it seems. Um, and I, oh I've, well, I, think the, I think the biggest thing that I've learned and the biggest thing that kind of impacts my day-to-day, -day, how I go about business, how I go about communicating with people, is there are... 
there are hundreds of years of stuff that have gone on in this country that we ignore. Mm-hmm. Because to actually engage it, like it, it's dark and rough, and we don't want to touch it. And, and like dirty now, and, you know, we dirty can watch, and ugly and messy, and yeah, and you know, we we can watch, we can watch Selma, or we can watch the Butler, and like we can get a, a peek of it. But what we don't realize is, and <clears throat> you almost sound like a conspiracy theorist when you start, you know, talking about it all. But like structurally. This country was just unfriendly to African Americans for hundreds of years, up until you know just a few decades ago, and then to act like there's not any residual effects mm-hmm. in the in the present just because you know Obama's in the White House is completely lunacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of people that say like, oh, you know, things are equal now. Things are you know people have just as many options. Have things gotten better? Of course. Is it is it a is it a, a wonderful and amazing thing that Nashville is not the Nashville it was 40 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yes. But at the same time, like we still have we still have huge residual effects of decisions that were made in the Federal Housing Administration under Nixon. Like the government made it illegal for for even hardworking, well-educated black people to live in white neighborhoods. Yeah. Like, and that wasn't yeah. long ago. Like that was, that was that was when you were a child. Like, was, yeah. I mean, I'm 50, so my class uh, when I entered first grade here in Alabama, mine was the first fully integrated class. Yeah. So that's 1970. Yeah. That that's not that long ago. No. And so, it's not. Um, and, and I think that... It's not even but, a full but, generation. But, but what, but what happens it. is is we see that stuff and people are scared of it because you don't because we don't know how to talk about it. Because no, everybody's... Af- I think everybody's afraid of like being accidentally racist. Um, no, I, I think there are some that are afraid of being accidentally and I think there are others who are or who are afraid of being accused of being when they're not. Well, but what, what I, what I but think... But then there are still what, racists. What, That's the whole thing. Yeah, but what I, I, but what I think is is at the core of, of our problem is that um, is that because things are complex, very complex, we can't solve it with headlines or just a couple pieces of legislation. Or a tweet. We don't really want to deal with it. And so things just continue to be buried and not really dealt with. And like, like the way the whole Ferguson thing was dealt with was was I think really poor that we were never able to talk about what was actually happening. Yeah. One of my employees was arrested three weeks ago for a crime he did not commit. Okay. I've sat with the, the mother of a young black man over the course of the past three weeks. And you know, you, you, one, you know what, what upper class middle America looks and sees is, oh, there was a kid who was, unfortunately, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, got picked up for a crime that he could, didn't commit. But, hey, you know, these things happen, but we have faith in the system. For this, for this mother... Her son was kidnapped and held with a $75,000 ransom and there was nothing that she could do to get to her boy. She felt completely helpless and no matter what she did, there was nothing that she could do to right this wrong. That, that's how she felt. And you could say like, oh, well, you know, it, she wasn't kidnapped, he was just picked up for something and you know, due process will happen and he'll be exonerated and it'll be okay. But if it wasn't for a little clip at Walmart, there's a really good chance that that boy would, would be in jail for a long time. And and it was in the working through that with this family was very helpful in seeing that like the, it, 
what happened to Ferguson wasn't about Mike Brown. Mike, Mike Brown was, was just a spark that set off a powder cake. Oh, absolutely. The powder cake yeah, 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 yeah. is hopelessness yeah. because you have so many people who for so long have felt like there's a system that is stacked against them where they don't have a choice, where their vote doesn't change anything, where their political expressions and beliefs really have very minimalistic impact um, because they, yeah, you know, some laws have changed, but at the same time, ghettos still exist. Like, even, you know, everything about how our culture is set up marginalized, or not, not everything, but there are so many things that marginalized the poor black community for hundreds of years. Like, even the implementation of the interstate system, it created ghettos. It, it ran through neighborhoods and then created pockets within cities where even in Nashville today, there, the the lines of good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods are very pretty clearly defined mm -hmm. by the highway system. Why is it that there's not a highway right through the middle of Brentwood or Franklin? Like, <laughs> but there is right th in multiple places right through North Nashville. Oh, um, that's for sure. I mean, when they built that little loop. But, it, but it, I mean, a lot of that is, is real similar to where we're sitting here in Huntsville, Alabama. I mean, yeah, right, right there, I can go and buy crack tw in 20 minutes. Yeah. Right over here, it's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, I work, my office is one mile that way in the middle yeah. of Research Park, yeah. where there's unbounded amounts of good jobs and wealth and all this kind of stuff, but I can go. Yeah, right over the highway. On the other side of, 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 uh, <coughs> of Ride Out Road, as I still call it. Yeah. And we're, you know, it's. Uh, so you're right. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing for, that, that I've finally come to understand, as a guy, I like to fix stuff, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and I only want to fix it once. I think that if I fix it once and I never have to deal with it again, totally ignoring Genesis 3, thorns and yeah. thistles. But, and so what that has led me to finally understand, though, is you can't undo... 200 years of institutional racism yeah. by really good laws and good things that have happened in the last 35 years. There has been progress made. Me, as a, as a white guy, thinks, well, well, then we shouldn't worry about it anymore. Yeah. We well, solved the problem. And the, and the problem is there are still, again, the guys that I went to school with and played football with, that's all they knew was, was integrated schools. Mm -hmm. But their parents and their grandparents, many of whom are still alive, grew up, I mean, I grew up in Athens, Alabama, which is yeah. like 20 miles west of here. I still remember colored and white drinking fountains, mm -hmm. seeing those as a kid. Well, there are still people alive, still white folks alive, that that was their life. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to take a while to fully fix a lot of the issues that we've got. And I think what we have to do as people who have an opportunity and have a voice is not to forget that. Well, it's. I think it's going to take a while because it's going to take multi generation. It, it is, and and what's a shame is there's there's two different points I want to make. It one is that um, I think a lot of white people with influence don't don't really want to deal with it because they don't know how to without it feeling punitive. What do you mean? Talk about that. Like a bit. how how do we how do we deal with with the generations. And, and, and centuries of racial inequality that allowed, like that allowed me to be sitting in a coffee shop in Huntsville, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, that, that allowed me to go to college. Like, like, you know, both my grandparents on my mom's side are doctors. Uh, that wouldn't happen if I was black. Mm-hmm. It's just, it just, you know, which was able to lay a financial foundation for me to be able to go to a private, a private institution. Like, like the, the, you know, there are certain, there wow. are certain things that I benefit from because I'm white. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the solution, is, like, it, I don't think the solution needs to be well because of those things that I enjoyed as a, as a white person. Now I'm in trouble. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think a lot of people don't want to touch the issues because we we haven't come up with a creative solution. And, well, and I, like I see my business as I'm trying to come up with creative solutions through mm-hmm. f- small business free enterprise mm-hmm. to where we can be righting cultural wrongs, but nobody's in trouble. Like, well, well, I'm, I'm, no, nobody's implicated. Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. We're, and, and But what's, what's so tough about doing what I'm doing is that you have misunderstanding on both sides because of hundreds of years of cultural garbage where well-meaning white people see what I'm doing and they want to make me into the blind side. <laughs> and and people who've who've come from a culture of being taken advantage of see what I'm doing and saying, oh well, he is making money off of this PR story yeah. of um, you know using the, these these poor yeah, kids. Because you've been on national TV, and so you know. And and what stuff is like, I don't. I'm not either. Like yeah. the reality is, the kids who come and work for me have a much more steady paycheck than I do. Yeah. Like the the conversation when I was <laughs> asking my my. My wife's father, uh, for her hand in marriage, I mean, as a, as a broke entrepreneur, that was kind of an awkward conversation. Like, hey, I'm doing this thing because I'm angsty and I believe in it. Can I marry your daughter? Um, and he's kind of like, well, are you going to have a roof? Uh, I hope so. Um, That's the plan. And um, It's my dream. You know, the, the, the reality is, like, we're, we're, not, we're not stacking the bills. Like, yeah. We're doing what we're doing because we believe in it. Um, and we have people who look at us and say, you know, you, you know yeah, you're, you're exploiting these young men. You know, this is, this is hurtful. This isn't helpful. And, I, and, I, and I'm constantly saying to them, come and see. Yeah. And, you, and, and somebody's probably also saying, well, you're just trying to deal with your white privilege guilt. You're trying to make up for that you feel guilty that you yeah. had all of this, and now this is a way for you to yeah. And, and I, and I, put and some honestly, sand I don't, I don't, I don't have that at all. Like yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about what I'm doing because I, I believe a term that I use a lot is, is I think that unfortunately our government has created, and I don't want to speak in total black and white terms here, but I think that our, our government has created by and large through our welfare system what I call economic hospice. Okay. And and I'm trying yeah. to, to create economic rehabilitation. Yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. if you look at just the history of humanity, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, when you got to be 12, 13, 14, you went to work. Sure. You, you didn't go to a job training program, which talked about work hypothetically. You went to work, mm-hmm. whether it was your dad or a mason or you know, whoever it was. Like mm-hmm. you went and you did work and you learned to work by doing work. Uh, yeah. You know, a, a apprenticeship. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And like we're... Like that's just kind of one of my basic assumptions is that these these young men they don't need a, a program to teach them hypothetical things about how to work. They just need to get in there. They need to break stuff, and then they need to fix it, and they need to figure it out. And and I, I tell my I tell my guys constantly, I will happily pay you for slow work done well mm-hmm. than for fast work that's shoddy. Mm-hmm. Or I I will happily pay you like if you know you, you, the belt on the belt sander breaks. 
I'm happy to pay somebody the 15 minutes or half an hour it takes to just sit there, look at it, and figure out how to fix it instead of calling me over to fix it. Mm -hmm. um, because I know that like through learning those things, they're going to become better employees. They're going to be able to be a, a bigger part of their own economic future solutions mm -hmm. um, through learning how to be good workers. And I don't yeah. think that there is yeah. a... There, I, I will happily make the claim that there is not a better place to learn how to work than the workplace. Sure. Um, and so, unfortunately, with I think um, we we as Americans have this business worldview where if you want to do something meaningful, you go nonprofit or do social work or you know you do something where you don't make money. And then if you want to make money, there's this whole other morality exists mm -hmm. that we enter into in the business world mm -hmm. where we have these little sayings like, "Well, that's just business," which means I'm allowed to be awful to you. Mm -hmm. um, it's not personal; <coughs> it's just business. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm trying to say, and I'm, I'm not unique, there's lots of other people doing this, but there, there are more businesses like mine where we're trying to say there is another way. Mm -hmm. And you know, this might show my hand on how I feel about gun ownership, but I don't think the problem is the economy, I think the problem is how we're using it. Yeah. Um, I don't think the problem is free enterprise or capitalism, the problem is that we are like if, if we've greed created this problem. morality that, that, that Not says free like enterprise, it's the greed that, that yeah. comes out of it. Yeah, and so I, I'm trying to say that like through my business, I'm trying to set an example, especially for for young people who are who are young and angsty and feel like I want to do something for the good of my city, and say you have the option to do something you love and to do something that's proactively good. Mm -hmm. um, Here's, here's one thing I, yeah. I, I want to make sure that I get in, because uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, and this is what struck me about what you're doing. <clears throat> you are, rather than, as you said earlier, just sit there and write blog posts about how awful whatever is and, and, and theorize about ideas that might fix it, you've actually done it. I mean, you have, obviously with the entrepreneurial spirit that you have and the business mind obviously that you have, you could be doing many other things making a whole lot more money than you are now. And yet, you saw some sort of- uh, A whole lot more money. A whole lot a more whole money. A whole lot more money. You saw uh, Bill Hobbles use the term holy discontent. Mm -hmm. and, and his phrase that went with it was, when you see something and you think that ought not to be. And, and Will, I got to tell you, man, you're going to mess a lot of Christians up because you've, you're showing all of us, you're sitting there writing a blog about it, it's not going not to make any difference. You have to get your yeah, hands Christians, dirty. Christians, please stop you, tweeting. You have to get out there and, and you have to have a barbecue in front of your house yeah. in, in the ghetto. And you have to do all of those things. You can't sit there and just read the scriptures and go to a white middle-class suburban church that has great music and great lights and great preaching and whatever, and then go home and, and say, yes, this is what I've, I'm doing, what, what I'm called to do. You are, basically I think what you've done is you've taken away our excuses. And I'm not saying this yeah. to build you up. I'm saying that as a model, uh, you have shown that yes, this can be done. I also want to be like really clear in that I don't want 
I don't want anybody to feel guilty. Like, no. Like I, 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 I want to be like, an I've had people in do, doing interviews. They say stuff like, "Oh, you know, do you think people just need to do what they love?" I say no. Some people do. I yeah. get to. Yeah. Somebody has to do customer service for Southwest Airlines. <laughs> like, like that's, that's or work a job. Or the Verizon that, call center over across the hill. Yeah, it's like <laughs> some, somebody needs to. And, and I guarantee that somewhere in the Southwest customer service, there's somebody working that job who hates it, yeah. but they're showing up every day in order to fulfill their greater responsibility as a loving daddy or mommy. Sure. And to put food on yeah, the yeah, table yeah, like yeah. they have to do that. Yeah. Um, and so, like, like I'm so, I, I get to do what I like. I mean, and I say, like, most days, I love this. I love skateboarding. I, I you know, I can create excuses to, uh, you know, go to the skate park as, you know, as a R&D, uh, <laughs> you know, time allocation. Like, I, I love what I get to do, but there's also, um, it, it takes a huge piece, piece of my emotional pie. Like, oh. like my, my relationship with my wife is is. Like you know, there are days. Like I went home the other day, and she's like, "Hey, can we watch this uh, this documentary on uh, genocide?" Because I'm Armenian, and that she wanted, she, being that she's married into an Armenian family, she wanted to learn about the Armenian genocide. I said, "Babe, I love you." No, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm too emotionally spent. So it's just like can't do it. Yeah, I can't. Like I can't. I can't afford. And I told her like the other night, I was just so stressed out after dealing with with the situation I've been going through the last couple of weeks, I said, like, I just, I can't afford to not, to care about other stuff right now. I was like, I don't know if that's selfish and wrong or prideful or whatever. I just, I, um, and, and what's tough is, like, these young men, it's not just employing them, but it's it's becoming their advocate and, like, in many cases, becoming kind of like their older brothers and yeah. looking out for them. And, yeah. you know, I'm the one who where, you know, I see what they're doing and pull them aside and be like, you're an idiot, stop doing this. Did they receive that? Yeah, but, it, but it's because... <laughs> It's because there's a lot of equity there, and it's equity that that you can't buy yeah. on. It's not just a paycheck equity. Yeah, but it, but what's 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 great about having a small business is I think that there are a lot of really well-meaning white evangelicals who want to, um, you know, who feel like they they look at the the poor multicultural or minority-based communities as like this mission field. It's like, oh, well, we just need to get in there. And so they show up and think that they're going to play basketball for two days and then on the third day be able to, you know, do a gospel-based skit and seal the deal. Um, but what's a shame is I feel like there are so many people who, um, without asking themselves, like, if this method of evangelism engagement was applied to me, how would I fee- feel? And honestly, you feel offended. Absolutely. Um, like but you were going like, to be somebody's scalp on the wall. Yeah, and, well, and, the and, and I feel like there's a lot of people that, that, whether they realize it or not, they view the way that they're doing inner city ministry as like, and this sounds terrible, but for lack of a better term, it's like going on mission safari. Like yeah. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go into the quote unquote wild and then take a picture of myself with one of the people who lives there and then come back and make it my profile picture and feel really good about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely, and and like I've ha- I have people regularly like say, oh, can we bring a group? No, <laughs> no you can't bring a group. Like <coughs> I'm running a business here. Yeah, not only am I running a business, but like these are these are young men that like I know and I love and like that. Like your 17 year old from the suburbs has nothing to offer my young man. If anything, I should be bringing a group to your school talking about like to talk about what it 
actually looks like to overcome or struggle or do something. Because your kid who's had everything dropped in his lap, just because you know he drives a brand new Toyota that his parents bought him, he like he doesn't have anything to offer my young man. And yet there's this assumption because like you know they're on a Ivy League trajectory that they have something to offer my young men. I'm sorry, but you you don't. And it, like it, honestly, like I like I find it offensive when people are like, "Oh, well, let us come and bring our people in order to you know serve you." Like, well, you're not going to do that in a week. Mm-hmm. Like the equity that I have mm-hmm. with these young men has taken years. They they trust me because they know I'm not going anywhere. Because you were barbecuing in the front yard with them. Yeah, but you they but they also the they also know that like like I don't I I don't I don't do what I do and then you know at the end of the day like you know go back drive to, to some nice neighborhood yeah, like drive back to Franklin or um, or whatever like like they know that I'm there they know that I will be there mm-hmm. like for for this young man who got out of prison um, my wife said to me yesterday well why aren't you hanging out with him today I said because he doesn't need me today she said well he just got out like shouldn't you be the one that he's spending time with I mean, you have a really deep relationship with him I said honestly right now it's sexy to hang out with him all the people I know that know him want to hang out with him today. Three weeks mm-hmm. from now, it's not going to be the case. There'll be something new, some other thing that's going on, and that's like, and that's when I'll be hanging out with him. And he knows that I'm going to be there. Me not, me not being here today, it doesn't matter. Like, there's 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 a line of people that want to take him to coffee and you know talk with him about about you know how, what it was like inside or whatever. I said, but two weeks from now, three weeks from now, when all those people disappear, I'm still going to be here, and he knows that. Well, I think maybe. Well, you may have just given the greatest uh, definition of what missional living really is, and that is when we're when we're out there and we're really trying to make a difference and we're invested in a place, is the people know that we're going to be there a month from now, yeah, or two months from now, or three months from now. Once the mission trip is over, for lack of a better term, they know that you're gonna that we're going to be there and. Uh, you know, again, this is this is so incredibly simple, but takes such courage to do. Even though I'm not sure it should take that much courage to do, because it's just following the precepts of, that we see in Scripture. It, it does uh, take courage because it, it takes stepping out. Like I remember the first time I went and met one of my next door neighbors, who <coughs> back in 2012 he was running our back alley like a like a, a drive-through for his drug trade. I okay. mean, it would be three cars deep with like kids in the back seat and. Um, and I remember just going over just to meet him, mm-hmm. and and people saying like, "Don't do that. That's dangerous." And just because there was the assumption, well, if he's dealing drugs, he's a dangerous person. And honestly, like, he was one of my nicest neighbors. Um, <laughs> and like his his mom was constantly offering to you know to make dinner, and, and that woman made some good food. And um, nice guy. He was he was doing the best he could with the cards that he'd been dealt. And, I'm not saying that you know he should deal with the consequences of his actions. He's not accountable. But I'm also saying like um, I think part of I think something that we as Christians need to stop doing is viewing people through categories of those people. Oh, um, moving moving to where I moved when I did and engaging That's with the good. people that I did makes me realize like. Like there are no those people. Like I would, I would be every boy that I mentor if it wasn't for God placing me in the home in which He placed me. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, 
it, it simplifies our lives when, when we can believe that like, oh, well, those people do that. And if only those people would blank. Mm -hmm. um, and so we basically like any, any knee jerk assumption you have is probably wrong about other people. Like if you turn on the news and you see some group of people doing stuff and you think like immediately what you think, you're probably wrong. Because I, I think that people are like we are more similar than we than we think. Like it's it's then not we want to admit. Yeah. Like you know, all it seems like you know, you turn on the news, all all you know, all conservatives think that all you know liberals have lost their mind, and vice versa. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so like what, what I've learned doing what I do is that when I, now when I engage a subject and if my knee-jerk reaction is anybody who thinks or believes or says this is fundamentally just an idiot or fundamentally doesn't understand. I call someone who's smarter than me who knows about the subject and say, <laughs> this is my immediate reaction. Explain to me what I'm not understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Being self-aware enough to know that. Yeah, and, and I think that, 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 that us as... as, as I mean, I, I would, you know, historically, I belong to the upper middle class, white evangelical conservative world. Like, we, we need to just stop, stop allowing our assumptions about people to be law. Yeah. Um, and and constantly, I, I, when we when we look at the 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 mission vacations we're sending our youth groups on. Like, what, what, what we're always seeing when they come back is like, they're always amazed. They're like, oh my gosh, those people are like us. Yeah, they are. And like, I love that scripture speaks in black and white statements. Like, you know, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you know, whether you are a coked out drug dealer who's pimping women or whether you're like me and that you were like, by the grace of God, you were saved from the self-righteousness that you were inclined to. Like, and... Yeah, I grew up in the church, and I, f I figured out how to run a personal PR campaign really well so that church people liked me, and I was able to have enough self-righteousness where I felt like I could look down on other people. Like, I was, I was saved from that. Like, I never got into drugs. I never got into sleeping around. But, like, by God's grace, he doesn't allow me to be a self-righteous churchgoer who actually doesn't know him. Mm -hmm. um, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is our is our testimony mm -hmm. in that like I, I was someone fundamentally who was opposed to God and needed to be saved from my sin. And whether you're born into a lot of money in a Christian home, in a Christian city, in a Christian country, or whether you are, you know, you are the dude that lit the match on the, you know, in ISIS that burned that Jordanian pilot to death. Like, fundamentally you start out in the same spot which is oh yeah an enemy of god that needs to be rescued yeah. and are desperately in need of grace yeah and i think that um that yeah i think that functionally That's so many of us are so self-righteous in terms of how we view other people and their problems um and and i think that we need to be taking we need to be we need to be slowing down and asking ourselves like these people that we judge or these people that we disagree with, or these people that we, like, any, any blanket statement that we throw out against XYZ people, like, if we try to understand them instead of just immediately write them off, like, you know, what, how, how can we sympathize? Because nine times out of ten, if you were in the same situation, coming from the same context, you'd probably be doing the same thing. Well, I think the only blanket statement that we can ever make that applies to everyone is Ephesians 2. Yeah. That is that we are separated from God. I think that 
is the beginning and ending of, all, of any blanket statement that could ever be rightfully applied to everybody. <clears throat> but I think the other part that uh, we miss because of the way we do things in evangelical circles is we miss the context. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what you have to dive in deeply and live in the world like you do to, un- to fully understand the context, right? Because you've seen, oh, okay, now I understand this context. I understand, like you said earlier in this interview, they can't, uh, a kid is going to have a tougher time in your neighborhood going to McDonald's and find a job because he's also competing with his parents or his aunt or his uncle yeah. because of the, there's just, the, again, the context and the opportunities aren't yeah. there. All right, we're, we're going to wrap this up. I got one last question. Who taught you the most about being a man and what did they teach you? Who taught me the most about being a man and what did they teach you? Am I allowed to say my wife? Sure. You're allowed to say anybody you want to. Um, yeah, my wife. You're the first one who's ever said that, and that's awesome. I love new answers. So what has she taught you? Um, she exposes my selfishness in a way that nobody else does. Um, she forces me to die to myself in ways that nobody else does. Okay. Um, I think that that very often we view masculinity through the lens of like like it's easy to have authority through subjugation mm-hmm. um, through intimidation through strength yeah all of the superior and strength all those things physical strength yeah and um, what being married is teaching me is that be, being a man has like a, a th- authority is purchased through self-denial. Mm. Um, I think I read that and, somewhere. And credibility and and respect is purchased through self-denial. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm, it- I'm, I'm constantly having to apologize to my wife. I'm constant like like my my wife doesn't love me and respect me because I'm always right because I'm not. My wife loves me and respects me because. When I'm not, I tearfully ask for repentance and apologize. Um, marriage is this weird thing where, like, there, you know, as a, as a single guy, you can be very aware of, of all your shortcomings and mm-hmm. feel like, yeah, I should get around to fixing those. And then you get married and you see immediately how all those things that you, some of which you knew about, some of which you didn't, mm-hmm. immediately you see how those things are causing pain for the person that you claim to love most in the world. And so there's this new urgency on being the man that you've always wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, because you see how your shortcomings or sins or, you know, whatever, just Im- like immediately and ferociously impact this person that you would do anything for. And so... Just um, a fresh motivation. Yeah, but yeah. Different she, she's definitely also had. exposed like my need for the Holy Spirit, and that like there's so many things where like I, I I tell her like like a few weeks ago she she just said like she called me out on like four or five things, and I was like I totally agree, and I wish I could wake up tomorrow and not be that man. Yeah, but I can't unless the Lord changes me overnight, and I I hope that He will. Let's pray that He will. That probably won't happen. Um, and so. Like, I, like something that, that has been a theme in my relationship with my wife is, is I say, like, I don't need you to give me the benefit of the doubt. I need you to give me grace. Because sometimes you're going to see, you're okay. going to see my shortcomings. And I don't need you to just assume that I didn't mean to do that. 
because there's going to be times where I do hurt you on purpose. It's totally my fault. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I need you to assume that I didn't mean it. I need you to assume like, yeah, he is that much of a schmuck. And yet I still need to love him anyway. <laughs> How long have y'all been married? Four months. <laughs> cool. Yeah, four, three. You? No. I'm not sure. Five. I'm not sure. Not many. I'm not sure what proves you're a great salesman more. The fact that you have started this company on your own and you're selling skateboards or you were able to talk your wife into joining you in this... Oh, uh, she's just as angsty about it as, as I am. Crazy journey yeah, that you're she's, on. No, she's just as angsty as I am. Um, she, she wants to, after she gets her PhD, she wants to move... Uh, to an inner city neighborhood of Nashville and start food programs and teaching uh, nutrition education and start okay. a community garden. And so, yeah, she's she's just as much of a, an, an idealist as I am. Kindred spirits, huh? Yeah. That's cool. Man, Will, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, buddy. I happen to. Learned a lot. So there you go. Will has uh, let you, like he let me see the other side of the coin, the other side of the world that we haven't seen. And it challenged some of my preconceived notions and my opinions, uh, as we sat down and talked those few years ago, uh, again, the name of his company, he and his brother are running is maple built. Uh, the website is M a P L E B U I L T.com maplebuilt.com. If you're in the central Tennessee area, they're at one Oh Oh three Buchanan street in North Nashville. Go by and check them out, uh, buy a skateboard, buy any of the other beautiful woodworking products that they have, uh, turned out and they continue to do it. And, um, again, as we're going through all of this uh, racial unrest. Can we just begin as men? Let's just start and take it as uh, a challenge for us as men to begin to listen, to have conversation, to try to learn and, uh, go into sit, go into when we hear this stuff going on, go in and go, okay, what can I learn? What can I, what can you teach me? What am I missing in this? And then I think that's a great way for us to begin to build trust, to build relationships so that we can have conversations and we can know when, uh, our brothers are hurting or there's something we can do. And that's the way we begin to make changes, men. So thanks for listening. And, uh, I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.